look on the screens with me. We're going to look at John chapter 10, uh, John 12, I mean, mean this morning. You can turn to it, but I'd like you to begin by standing and reading it together with me. We're going to have it on the screens up here, and let's just read the words together, okay? Okay, ready? Here we go. Many people, including some of the Jewish leaders, believed in him, but they wouldn't admit it to anyone because of their fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Jesus shouted to the crowds, if you trust me, you're really trusting God who sent me, for when you see me, you are seeing the one who sent me. I have come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the darkness. If anyone hears me and doesn't obey me, I am not his judge, for I have come to save the world and not to judge it. Father, thank you that in the fullness of time you sent your son, born of a virgin, born into this darkness to bring light and to change this world for the better. May we uh, understand that clearly today now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Uh, a few years ago, I was able to spend some time studying with Samuel Sandmel. He's a very prominent rabbi from New York City and was no, uh, noted because he had actually gotten a degree in New Testament. Uh, and as one who had studied the New Testament and tried to understand, he wrote several books called Like We Jews, we Jews and Jesus. And, and as I talked to him, uh, the one compelling point he tried to make with me was this. Uh, why do Jews reject Jesus? And he said, well, I think at its core it's this. You Christians say the Messiah has come, the anointed one of God came into this world, and, uh, and yet we as Jews look at it and we say, well, it, the world is no better than it was before he came. There are as many wars, there's as much fighting, there's as much hatred, there's as much killing, there's as much animosity. And you say everything changed because Jesus came, and we say, how did it change? That's a brilliant question that I'd like to answer today. There was a campaign in England a few years ago. This was one of the bumper stickers, and it was, uh, I wish the baby Jesus had never been born. You know, I, I think a lot of us can go out shopping and end up uh, with a little bit of Santa claustrophobia or something, or getting a little mauled, you know, and, and sometimes we can understand because it is a very busy, very stressful season for a lot of people. It's hard emotionally for some people. But here's the question we'd like to look at today. What would the world be like if Jesus Christ had never been born? Uh, why... Is that an important question? Well, we resonate with it. Can I remind you one of the favorite holiday movies is this one by Capra, It's a Wonderful Life, with uh, Jimmy Stewart playing George Bailey. And then uh, he meets his, uh, his angel Clarence, uh, and he, Clarence shows him what would the world have been like if he had never been born. And, you know, his city turns into Pottersville and the evil Mr. Potter, you know, who's conspiring throughout the film, 
uh, is trying to bring everything in that city under his evil leadership. And yet at the end, it's a happy ending. And, and uh, he back with his family again, with his friends coming around and support him. And we see that life is significant more than we realize. So again, what would the world be like if Jesus had never been born? Let me give you as a, a, just a ton of specifics on this question. The value of human life. Uh, in China, uh, girls for years, uh, and I'm, I'm, you'll notice I'm documenting everything, not just from Christian writers. I'm intentionally trying to talk about what people in the real world, not even necessarily Christians, see and say. Adam Smith wrote, in all the great towns of China, several babies are every night exposed in the street or drowned like puppies in the water. Because girls were not valued before the Christians came to China, it was just routine that the girls were just not even kept alive and intentionally killed at time. In India, the widows in India uh, would, were Here's a quote. Uh, prior to Christian influence in India, widows were burned on their husbands' funeral pyres, a practice known as sati. The word literally translates good woman, as Hindus believed it was a good woman who died with her husband. So if you were a woman and your husband died, they would take you and kill you and put you on the fire and burn you with him before the Christians came. How about uh, Eskimos? The elderly, where they would just put people out uh, before the Inuit and other people came to know about God, they would just put them out on an ice floe and send them out to die and be exposed in the wintertime. How about slavery? We know that uh, in the times uh, when the Bible was just being written, the New Testament, half of the population of the Roman uh, Empire were slaves, and three out of four people in Athens, uh, Greece, were slaves. We know that great people like William Wilberforce started this in England and spent 20 years to halt the slave trade and five more years to free 700,000 British slaves. We know that his work and words had great influence on our country, eventually abolishing slavery and valuing the life of all people let alone sanctity of life, which we've seen changes in our country in the last few years. I'm one of those people who do believe that life, you know, begins, uh, you know, before birth and, and that we need to have love and respect and care for every human life. Uh, I, I, you know, I look back at what uh, Germany did during the Nazi regime to take anyone who was uh, not 100% normal and just uh, execute them, to take old people who were weak, execute them, you know, uh, but the Christians have always held to sanctity of life. So many of the nursing facilities and assisted living homes. My mother, uh, my mother-in-law lives in one that was started by the Methodist Church up in Minnesota, and it's the Christians who started it. How about compassion and charity? Um, I love the story of St. Lawrence of Aragon. He was a generous uh, church leader, especially to the poor. He was ordered by a Roman official uh, to surrender the treasures of the church. And so he brought some poor people and some old people and some lame people and presented them and said, these are the treasures of the church. We understand that all uh, people have value and are to be treated with respect. A lot of the missions things that we support as a church here 
uh, are reaching out to help people who are going through tough times in life. How about the church itself? In Proverbs, it tells us that blessed are those who help the poor. In 2 Corinthians, it teaches us, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. The example of Christ, Philippians 2, was that he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. And his, his giving, his uh, sacrifice is the example for all of us. During the Middle Ages, uh, we're told that the uh, church was a continent-wide in England, um, in, in Europe, uh, organization for financial aid. Uh, the church... The church grew significantly during the Middle Ages because uh, in the days when people were taking people who were sick, their own relatives, their own family, didn't know what to do with them. There was no hope for them medically, so they would just put them out on the street to die and, and let, the, let the government or somebody take care of them. And as they were put out there, the Christians began to reach out to those people. Uh, people in our world today, like Mother Teresa who did that, and others who did that, to show the compassion of Christ in tangible ways. The same in the 19th century when disease was ravaging the world. It was the Christians who were the ones reaching out. How about uh, today? Look at these groups, the Salvation Army, World Vision, Food for the Hungry, just a few, Samaritan's Purse, Prison Fellowship, Christian Children's Relief, Compassion. Uh, there's just so many things. If, if you looked up Christian charities on the Internet, there's so many you just can't even believe it, and most of them you've never even heard of. But the church is the organization. There's only, if you go and see the Rose Parade, there's only one group that throughout the entire parade, people will applaud and some people will stand and applaud. And it's the Salvation Army Band when they come by because people recognize uh, the care that the church people have shown throughout history. How about uh, Santa Claus? Well, St. Nicholas wasn't the original one and set this kind of example of, of this, this person. You know, uh, great to think of at this time of year that so many ways the church has encouraged generosity and caring. Education, uh, the first thing we look at is language. Uh, it was mo the modern idea of public education, that is education for everyone, first arose in Europe during the Protestant Reformation. Uh, when papal authority was replaced by biblical authority. In other words, uh, when we get in 1611, the first King James Version, it was so that people could actually read the Bible, and a lot of people didn't want the Bible read, uh, and they, they didn't want uh, people to study it, but the Christians were saying, we've got to teach people to read so that they can read the Bible for themselves. And public education was born out of that. Uh, the group, uh, our Converge, was originally started as the Swedish Baptist General Conference. And it was studied as a group evangelizing Swedish immigrants to America about 165 years ago. The, the people who came to America left Sweden because they were often called uh, readers, because they would get together and read and study the Bible, and it was illegal in Sweden. It, you could not, as a person, study the Bible yourself. You had to have uh, one of the pastors of the Church of Sweden with you, or you couldn't even open a Bible. Uh, 
One of the stories I love is they would have Bible studies. They put a bottle of whiskey on the table so that people would think if they came in, you know, it would kind of hide the fact that they were actually having a Bible study. You know, but it was difficult because it was illegal. You could be arrested just for studying the Bible. Uh, and schools, the schools, from its beginning, the religion of the Bible uh, has gone hand in hand with teaching Christianity. Uh, par excellence, uh, it is a teaching religion. And the story of its growth is largely an educational one. Uh, printing, it was Gutenberg. The, I've been in Germany and seen his press. I know what I want to do. I want to print the Bible. And so he comes up with this uh, type, set type uh, way of printing at the universities. I love this. From 1620, for 217 years, uh, by the way, the, the day the pilgrims landed at, at Plymouth Rock was uh, today. It was uh, this date in history. But in, in, since they landed, virtually all education in America was private and Christian. Almost every one of the first 123 colleges and universities in the United States had Christian origins. Dartmouth was founded to train missionaries for the Indians. William and Mary was created that the Christian faith might be propagated. Harvard started by the Reverend John Harvard, also at Yale, Princeton, Northwestern, Columbia. It was Harvard himself who said the great end of all education is to know the Lord Jesus Christ, who is eternal life. In other words, if Christ had never come into this world, none of that would have happened. Certainly not with the passion that it was started with. What about government? Look at the foundation. No one can read the history of our country without realizing that the good book and the spirit of the Savior have from the beginning been our guiding geniuses. Whether we look at the first charter of Virginia to the charter of New England or to the charter of Massachusetts Bay or the fundamental orders of Connecticut, the same objective is present. A Christian land governed by Christian perspectives. Who said that? The Supreme uh, Court Justice Earl Warren. Uh, the Mayflower Compact says in it, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, uh, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant and combine ourselves together the Plymouth Compact for the Pilgrims. What about our founding fathers? Was this started as a Christian nation or not? George Washington, in his farewell address, said, let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. The Constitution that we have, so many of the principles of law are based on Scripture. One of the things the Bible says is the way that you know the truth is through the testimony of two or three witnesses. And this becomes one of the basic principles of law. Abraham Lincoln, many would say our greatest president, said it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God and to recognize the sublime truth announced by the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. Those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. 
How about science? One of the things I worked for a while when I was younger on staff for a while with Youth for Christ and then with Campus Crusade, and one of the things they would talk to us about when you were starting a Bible school, uh, uh, some kind of a Bible club in a, in a school campus, where would you go? Because you had to have a faculty advisor, faculty support. And the, the, the normal thing they would say is go look in the science department. You're more likely to find believers in the science department than any place else in the school. And, you know, it was the, the Christians that called it the mother of science, Christianity, it was Alfred Lord Whitehead. Christianity is the mother of science because of the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. In other words, because church people believed that there was a, a sense of normalcy to the world, things they could understand. If you've ever read the book, None of These Diseases, about how, how uh, people just reading about the washing ceremonies of the scripture began to transform, uh, you know, uh, medicine, you know, back when, when uh, doctors would go and a woman would die in delivery and the doctors would go and do an autopsy and then they would go from the autopsy, right, uh, to deal with the other women and they'd never even wash their hands in those days. And they began to read about the Jewish cleansing ceremonies and said, maybe we need to start doing it. And a Christian doctor changed the whole world in terms of preserving the life of those women. Uh, the Royal Society of London, Isaac Newton. I have a foundational belief in the Bible is the word of God. I study the Bible daily. You never hear that in school, do you? You never hear about the, the, the way that the Bible has become so much uh, a guide and a help to people. It was Kepler who in, in science as a great pioneer said th that it was thinking God's thoughts after him or Blaise Pascal who invented the first computer. Jesus Christ is the only proof of the living God. We only know God through Jesus Christ. And then start looking at all the other areas. Look at antiseptics with Lister and uh, bacteriology with Louis Pasteur, chemistry, Boyle, anatomy. Look at all of these areas. Let's go on. Here's another one. Let's go field theory. All the way down to the discoverer of mapping out DNA and being able to help analyze DNA so that we can find if there's something wrong in the DNA that's causing a, a disease so that we can take that on and try to solve that disease. Uh, Christian people who believe that, that God has a sanity about him and a rationality and sometimes just in their Bible reading and their scripture reading uh, discover things. Economics, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, means that the Bible con uh, countenances private property. For it is if a thing is owned in the first place, uh, if it's not owned in the first place, it can scarcely be stolen. Um, just the idea that stealing is wrong, uh, you know, comes from emphasis in, in, in our faith, the teaching of Jesus about money. The Bible, with more than 700 references to money, says more about economics than many other subjects. Nearly two-thirds... Two out of three of the parables of Jesus let us, uh, left us to deal with the use and handling of it. How about Luca Pacioli? You haven't heard of, but because God is rational, he was uh, an Italian mathematician, Franciscan friar, 
collaborated with Leonardo da Vinci, and he was the seminal contributor to the field now known as accounting. Because if things are normal and rational, you can keep track of it. Health and medicine. Jesus was the healer. Jesus uh, changed uh, the idea of just not letting people die or live with their disease, but reaching out and helping people. In Matthew 12, it tells us Jesus healed all the sick among them. People flooded to Christ because of the power that he had. Hospitals, the early hospitals in in the United States were framed and motivated by the responsibilities of Christian stewardship. Uh, So many of the hospitals, uh, the first name of the hospital is Saint so-and-so. So many of them are started by Christian people to try to reach out and make a difference. Or right here in our community, a special clinic to help out even people who can't afford medical care. The kingdom of heaven, Florence Nightingale said, nursing is within, but we must also make it so without. Or the Red Cross, founded by Henry Dunant, I was aware of an invitation, vague and yet profound, that my work was an instrument of his will. It seemed to me that I had to accomplish it as a sacred duty and that it was destined to have fruits of infinite consequence for mankind. Take the medical missionaries. It's interesting, I heard a number of years ago, about a dozen years ago, there was a meeting of Islamic leaders. And in this private meeting of Islamic leaders, uh, they were talking about why was it that in terms of Africa, south of the Sahara, it was becoming a Christian continent. How, how, did, they, how did they lose Africa? And they decided that it was Christian compassionate ministries of caring for people that had made the people of those countries flood into Christianity. And as a result of that, they, they have pretty much just given up on that and tried to work then to resurrect that for medical missions and compassion, again, as we have right here in our city. Uh, what about the arts? Well, <laughs> I, I went through the Getty Museum a number of years ago, and, you know, you go through the museum, and it's chronological. And I, I was getting through the first building, and I kind of came through the first building and wondered if there was going to be a picture or, or a statue or a carving that wasn't about Jesus. Everything was. Uh, the great art has always been motivated by, by Jesus Christ. Cynthia uh, writes, more poems have been written, more stories told, more pictures painted, and more songs sung about Christ than any other person in human history. Because through such avenues as these, the deepest appreciation of the human heart can be more adequately expressed. The beauty of architecture uh, every, every place you go in the world. If you ever watch Rick Steves, I, I love the fact that he, wherever he goes, he's, he's showing you the cathedrals because they're just so beautiful. And the artistry of architecture, the Renaissance and all of the art that was created by Christian people, funded quite often by Christians, funded by the church to create these icons of statues of, uh, of Jesus, these statues of the Pieta, the, the Last Supper, uh, all the different great things that we love. How about literature? 
William Shakespeare said, I commend my soul into the hands of God, my creator, a hoping and assuredly believing through the only merits of Jesus Christ, my savior, to be made partaker of life everlasting. Charles Dickens, my dear children, I'm very anxious that you should know something about the history of Jesus Christ, for everybody ought to know about him. Or how about all these other writers from Dostoevsky all the way down to John Greenleaf Whittier, great writers, great thinkers who wrote and used their work to honor the Lord Jesus. I think one of the crowning achievements of Christian's work and Christian faith was music. Uh, you look at the uh, great writers like Bach, who writes a sola deo gloria, only to God be the glory on every piece of music he wrote. Yesterday, I went to hear the Seattle Symphony and chorale do the Messiah. Amazing piece by Handel. And you've got all of these great Christians who create all of this great music, even the praise music that we enjoy today. What's the greatest evidence of Jesus Christ changing this world? the lives of people. I mean, people like Peter and Paul. Here's Augustine living like a reprobate in, in Africa who becomes saved and becomes one of the leaders of the church. John Newton, a captain on a slave boat who comes to Christ and wrote one of our greatest songs, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. How about C.S. Lewis and these great thinkers who have written uh, so many of the, the things that we treasure and then I think the greatest evidence, though, is you. How about your life and how Christ has changed you? When my grandfather came to Jesus, he was, um, he was the leader of a gang in Chicago. It was called the, the Little Hell Gang. And he was a street fighter in those days. And uh, he loved music. He thought he had a great voice. He loved singing. And so he wanted to go to Moody Church, had a special singer doing concerts there. And so he wanted to go hear that singer, so he went there, but they wouldn't let him in the building. The ushers at the door wouldn't let him in. And so he snuck in through the fire escape. And at the end of the music, uh, the great preacher, R.A. Torrey, got up and gave a short message and invited people to come and accept Jesus Christ. And my grandfather went forward, and it was Paul in the Damascus Road. This, this street kid, this fighter, this agitator for the labor unions in Chicago became a, a, a Christian in a heartbeat and changed his life forever. Or how about when God did his best work in Park Ridge, Illinois, when in 1958, there was a little boy who had heard a sermon on hell and he was so scared he couldn't sleep and he's crying in his bed and his mother came into his room and said, Billy, why, what's wrong? And I said, Mom, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. And she said, would you like to pray and let Jesus in your life right now? Greatest day in my history. We had friends over that night. It was after a Wednesday night service. And my mom said, let's go down. Jim and Corey Forstrom are downstairs. Let's go tell Jim and Corey that you gave your life to Jesus tonight. And here I am now, all these years later, just so grateful that I came to know Jesus. Here is a writing that someone anonymously put out. I wish there were some beautiful place called the land of beginning again, 
where all of our mistakes and all our heartaches and all of the poor selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never be put on again. And brothers and sisters, friends, there is a place like that where life can begin again. Jesus said in the text we read, I've come as a light to shine in this world. He said, I have come to save the world and not to judge it. And Jesus in Matthew 11 said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. I will give you what nobody else can give you. I don't care whether you're talking about any promise that any religious group or anything from drugs to alcohol to what else has ever promised. I will put it back up there. I will give you rest. I'll give you peace. The writing of Kenneth Latourette, no life ever lived on this planet has been so influential in the affairs of men as that of Christ. Through Jesus, millions of people have had their inner conflict resolved. Through Jesus, hundreds of millions have been lifted from illiteracy and ignorance and have been placed upon the road of growing intellectual freedom and control over the physical environment. Jesus has done more to allay the physical ills of disease and famine than any other impulse, and Jesus has emancipated millions from slavery and vice. You see, there is a Christ in that word Christmas. Uh, go forward one, and we celebrate that we don't just celebrate a time of year, we celebrate a birthday of the one who we love so much. The one people say to me, well, he never said he was the Messiah. I'm like, <laughs> how stupid are you? Uh, how about this? Uh, the, the Jews had a Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin. And it was the Supreme Court of the nation of Israel. It was religious, but it was a lot like the Islamic people where it was not just spiritual, but it was actually ran the government as well. And in that group, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one? Are you the son of the blessed one? And they would never say the name God because they have respect for it. They substitute the word Adam lie. Are you the son of the blessed one? Jesus said what? Jesus said what? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one who was promised? Are you the son of God? Are you the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, yes, I am. And so in John 3, he said, I came... I didn't come to judge. I came to save people. He said in John 10, I want to give people a life which is rich and satisfying. He said in John 1, that to everyone who believed in him, to everyone, the worst sinner in the world, the worst person you've ever met, if they would believe in him and accept him, he gives the right to become children of God. They're reborn. They have a fresh start, a new beginning. Lord, as we come to celebrate your birth, we thank you for all the changes that you have brought about in our world because of your concern for this world, that you do love this world and you do want to save this world. And I just pray that you would help and change 
each of us. It'd be such a joy this season if we could celebrate Christmas because we know Christ. And if you're here today and, and you're not sure you're a Christian, you're not sure you know Jesus, I'd like you just in your mind, God's omniscient, he knows every thought, and I'd like you just in your thoughts to, to say this, this, this simple prayer to me. Just say, Jesus, I need, a, I need you. I need a fresh start. I want a personal relationship with you, Jesus. I want to start something new today that's never been for me. I want this to begin a, a whole new chapter of my life. I, I, I need a place that I can just start again. As the poem said, I just want to take off the old life like a dirty coat and put on a new beautiful garment to be in a relationship with you, Jesus. So Jesus, just come, forgive me, bless me, put your arms around me, love me, be with me today. And as you pray that prayer, Jesus said, if you will acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before God in heaven. And so for that reason, I ask you one time, I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask you to sign anything. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm just going to ask you, if you prayed that prayer with me and you want to begin a new life with Christ, or you just need a fresh touch from God today, just put your hand up right now. Nobody looking around. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Just put your hand up and say, pray for me. I want to make the, yep, yep. I want to make that decision today. I'm not going to beg and plead. I'm just giving you an opportunity. One more time, just put your hand up and say, I prayed that. Yes, yes. Last call, anyone else? Father, just seal these commitments. You said that if we would make this decision, your Holy Spirit would come and would seal that decision. So seal it, we pray right now. Let's stand together. And sing this little chorus with me as we close, okay? Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord God lift up his face toward you and give you peace. In the name of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And Merry Christmas. <laughs>